I'm Christine Rain. Welcome to the Heroine's Journey podcast, where we understand our personal stories of change with insight, compassion, and inspiration. The first phase is characterized by a rupture of some kind. Something core in our life changes and it's no longer possible to understand the world as we have before. This rupture might happen as a result of a betrayal, a very big disappointment, unmet expectations, or even an accomplishment of something we expected would feel quite different. It may be a moment that is visible to others and the world, or rather extremely private. What is certain is that for the person experiencing the rupture, nothing will ever be the same. I have the pleasure to introduce Sarah Wu as our guest for this episode. She's a representative for Mother Nature as a writer and teacher of deep ecology, therapeutic ecology, and whole systems design, shared through the lens of herbalism and permaculture. Sarah has 23 years studying and practicing the science, art, and craft of regenerative herbal medicine. She teaches earth sciences, regenerative strategies for human settlement design, community development, and alternative social structuring. She's well-versed teaching archetypal symbolism and storytelling for personal reflection via tarot and evolutionary astrology. And by tarot, I mean tarot. <laughs> A producer at heart, Sarah loves curating courses, workshops, and events, and is the Friendly Village Witch, co-founder and producer of Envision Festival, a 10,000-person arts and culture event in Costa Rica, which is actually the first time I ever met Sarah. As an international facilitator, she's brought her teachings to the U.S., Guatemala, Costa Rica, Panama, Cuba, Italy, Portugal, France, and Germany. Sarah and her husband live off the grid half the year at her homestead in the low mountains of Costa Rica and the other half of the year in the coastal mountains of the Marche region of Italy and is developing a one hectare permaculture farm. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much for that introduction, Christine. Thank you for having me. Sarah, the key moment of the first phase of the heroine's journey is a deep rupture of some kind. It can be a moment of betrayal or massive disillusionment or fallen expectations, as I said before. And just to be clear here, I know we all go through many moments of disillusionment in our lives, you know, where things don't go our way. But what I'm really referring to is those life ruptures that break down the story we tell ourselves of who we are and really make us question our identity. I'm wondering, and I ask this with a lot of care because I know it's a vulnerable question, 
if you would be willing to share with us a moment in your life where you experimented a deep rupture of some sort, when something you believed in deeply kind of crumbled before your eyes. Wow, disillusionment. <laughs> it is interesting. And I, I think it's a, um, a huge part of our, our generational story. For those of us maybe in our late 30s, mid 30s into our early 40s, I'm in my early 40s now. And uh, disillusionment, those of us who are teenagers, you know, in the 90s, I think that was just our motto. Um, but, you know, a, a big part of my, I would say disillusionment or, you know, my my betrayal was actually my relationship with my own body and my journey through relationship and um, ideas, expectations, dreams, all the things of what it meant to perhaps be become a mother. And through that journey, I, I found so many other ways in, in which I mother you. I'm a, I'm a teacher. And so to speak about <laughs> the rebirth just quickly, you know, I, I'm in a place right now and where I'm able to talk about this because I, I feel very happy and very satisfied with who I've become through the process. Um, even though it was such a, a, a deep, dark, scary place um, and very, very sad place for me. So a part of that story was, you know, I got married in my, in my late twenties to a person that I, really idealized and look up to in in a way that was maybe a little unhealthy at certain times especially when I was younger because he he is not significantly older but older enough that it was a strong he was a strong uh, male mentor and idol for me for quite some time especially when I was much younger uh, as I met him when I was only 19 years old so when we finally got together and got married, I was 27, 28, and then this whole realization of, okay, now who am I in in relationship with this person who's quite big, who has a very confident attitude and is very much like, get her done, let's do everything, I'm omnipotent <laughs> personality, <laughs> which they actually say about themselves. And um, <laughs> so really trying to find find my own self in all of that, right? And I really learned how to find my voice. I found that identity, you know, found my identity as teacher, as I healed so much in my relationship with other women coming from disillusionment of you know, what it was to be a young woman and women being competitive and terrible with each other. And, you know, but when I was with this person and creating and, and becoming more and more myself and finding the strength in my voice, aside from that, we're also a married couple. And there's so much, you know, when you're an early married couple, especially when you're a woman in your 20s and in your 30s, you know, people, some of the first questions they always ask is, when are you having kids? When are you having kids? And it's such an intrusive and annoying question, but <laughs> and very personal, you know, and people, it's just like they have this expectation of like, okay, this is the steps that you do, especially when you go into partnership with someone. It's like there is, now you have your house and now you have your family and now you have your, your children and your entire world. And then eventually the children leave the house and then you're this retired couple, right? And we have this like, <laughs> this golden, formula. Yeah. This like formula and this like golden ideology of what, 
that's all going to look like, you know, as you become partnered up. And, and we know that that's just not everyone's reality. And so as we're going through the creation phase in our relationship for our projects, what also came up because we were very much a productive force. Um, and what also came up for us then was like, okay, now what's the next, you know, step in, in this formula to complete ourselves and to make ourselves whole and, you know, and to have this, you know, perfect little family that we can show the world and how we're supposed to live and da da da. And so, you know, when we were, I guess, trying to to conceive, what really started to come to the forefront was that it wasn't happening. And um, for myself, you know, I had never been one of those. I was sexually active quite young. Um, it was, you know, I, I always had boyfriends. I was always, you know, in intimate relationships since like 14 years old, actually, like very young with, with men and never got pregnant, but I was getting a, a lot of pressure from my partner. My partner was just, we have to find the best doctors like this and that. And then it was also coming from the family too, which was really hard as well. Of Just, you have to find the best doctors. We have to know everything. And it, it, it wasn't personal anymore. All of a sudden it was like, other people's thing to deal with as well, which really made me feel quite vulnerable and exposed and shamed for that. And so what actually happened, which finally sent me to the doctor is that I bled for like 25 days straight. And I found out through that, that I, there was like a uterine polyp. I was like, okay, that's, that's okay. That's small, benign thing. I can have that removed. It's okay. Right. But I mean, having a polyp in, in the uterus too, you know, it's like there's a physical blockage in this space that is supposed to be, you know, this amazing like receptacle, this cauldron for life. And mine has a flaw. I remember feeling like frustrated. Like you always ask those questions. Why? When we go through a health crisis, like, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Did I expose myself to something? Did I take something? We go into a lot of self self inquiry of like I'm to blame for this. Um, so that I think that was probably the first thing. Like, what did I do wrong? Was it the hormones I took when I was a kid? Was it my diet? Was I starting to blame it on where my parents' house is because I grew up near a, a corn and soy fields? Is it because of all these things? So trying to find out why there was a polyp. There's actually no reasons it's it's quite like idiopathic you know it's like they show up for women for all various reasons it could be hormones it could be exposure it could be toxins it could be stress you know it's one of those things where okay i have no answers right now so then the in the inquiry starts to go deeper then right of like okay is what's that blockage there like am i am i the one creating it because maybe i don't want this and that was always the back end question for myself is actually maybe i don't want this Maybe I don't want to be a mother, but I'm feeling this pressure and and everything. So so through that, then we also saw like polycystic ovaries and that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, how can I clean this up? So that made me actually feel quite empowered once noticing, okay, there's some cysts on my ovaries. I know how to deal with that. I'm an herbalist. I can handle this, right? Some so sense of, of control. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Super sense of control. And I'm an agent in my life again. So then that felt, okay, I can handle it again. Like, let's, let's see what I can do. Let's like remake my diet. Let's get my herbal protocol. Like what supplements do I need to do, et cetera, et cetera. So I actually was quite successful in 
cleaning up my ovaries, meaning, you know, like uh, getting rid of the poly, the many cysts that were there, um, along with, you know, the doctor that I found was really quite amazing because, and, and it's just such a, a salute to, you know, the Costa Rican medical system. Like the people are really deeply compassionate and I'm very fortunate that I was also able to pay for private care here. The public care is incredible, but the, you know, the private care is so nurturing in this country, at least how I've experienced it. And so, you know, my doctor was really sweet and he loved it that I was an educated patient. He was never talking down to me. I was like, okay, I'm researching this. This is my belief system. I'm open to this. Let's try this. What do you think? Oh, how powerful to find an ally like that in the medical system. It was really lovely. And I've had a lot of experience like that here, I will I will say. So that felt really good, you know, and having this doctor who was like, yeah, like, let's, I'm open to hearing what you have to say. And also not just straight up prescribing procedures and pharmaceuticals, you know, it was like he quite would go down the route also of like supplementation and those types of things. So which is slightly alternative for an allopathic doctor to talk about supplements. <laughs> so which felt good, you know. Um, so then, okay, let's try again. And still like nothing, you know, and it was years were passing through the process of like, let's try and let's try my herbs and let's take ayahuasca and let's like do all the things, you know, to try to figure out, you know, where are all of these blockages coming from? And then, you know, that was suggested, why don't you try uh, intrauterine insemination? So maybe there's also an issue with, you know, how with your partner and how sperm travels and all of this, and let's just try to increase chances. So that opened up then the door to consuming more pharmaceuticals, specifically birth control pills, which I was like, oh my God, am I back on birth control now? Like I took this when I was 15, I took it when I was 17 and I hated it both times. And now I'm 30 and I'm taking birth control to try to get pregnant. Like what is going on here? And so started with that. And then, you know, with the intrauterine insemination, it's probably the least sexy way that you can imagine trying to make a baby. It's, you know, masturbation in a cup to taking it to a lab to then being inseminated by a tube, which is quite uncomfortable. And so if you think a speculum exam is uncomfortable, it's like taking it to the next level. Talk about a fallen vision of how you're creating <laughs> life and bringing life into this world. <laughs> like, I know. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's the beginning of the disillusionment, you know, like, oh, we're not going to like make love by the river <laughs> at a full moon with <laughs> Venus. <laughs> anointed with oils and flowers like no it's the opposite of of sexy romance sterile walls will have to do sperm in a cup great so so we did we did that twice and failed both times and in that there was another phase of disillusion where i was like maybe i really actually don't want this at all and i don't want to try and if my body is saying no and it's not happening, then I don't think I want to do this. I was like sharing these feelings with my partner and it kept coming back to how can you not, how can you not want this? How can we not do this? The world needs us and, you know, to make babies, the world needs us and, and we have to. And so it was also the beginning of the disillusionment for my relationship and who this person was and who we were together. And 
what was I? Was I just another tick on their, you know, accolades chart of like, okay, now they found a beautiful wife and that beautiful wife is their partner. And the next step is now they're going to have their babies. And if they can't have their babies, does that say something about who they are in, you know, their role of, of idol to many. And so that was the beginning of the end, I think, for the relationship was when I wasn't being heard about what my need and my belief system was. And I did continue to succumb to that pressure because having the failed IUIs, again, intrauterine insemination, it was another betrayal of my body of just being like, well, why? What's happening here? And in my inquiry, I wanted to find out more. So then asking, let's try blood tests. I want to see what's happening, you know? And so they started doing blood tests and identified a gene, which is affectionately called the motherfucker. No. <laughs> You're kidding. It is the MTHFR. <laughs> what? Oh my God. And it's a it's an enzyme. It's a genetic defect, which actually they S they, whoever they are, researchers, and there's not that much research done into it, but estimation of like maybe 15% of the population carries this genetic mutation, which causes you to clot irregularly as well as not metabolize folic acid properly. I believe it, it could be one of the leading causes for recurrent miscarriages as well. So, of course, I'm like trying to find all the information I can. I'm on like PubMed. I'm in like the, you know, New England Journal of Medicine. I'm like in all like the best publications trying to find info and very, very little info. Okay. So I have this. This is what's happening, which then gave me again some agency back. <laughs> I'm like, I have an idea now of what's going on. So then, in the continuation, my partner was like, okay, now we have to try IVF, in vitro fertilization. And my guttural initial instinct was always no. I never wanted to do it. It was always like, no, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I'm forcing something. You know, I started talking about things like adoption. And when my partner would refer to adopted children as it, and how can we love it? Like we would love our, our child. Like what if... What if it isn't who we want them to be, like those types of things? And that was another disillusionment and disruption, you know, in in the relationship of like, wow, this isn't this isn't what I want to be in, you know, and feeling this pressure coming from from their family, feeling the pressure coming from him, but we have to, but we have to. And so finally, just feeling very quite bullied into the process. I'm really sad and touch that you had to go through that yeah yeah i mean i can't even imagine the amount of pressure and and feeling alone probably yeah it was terrible and i was so ashamed i didn't really tell anybody what was going on you know it was like our family knew and um both sides of our family knew and everything and, and that was about it i have i had like two friends that i would talk to about it who were also um struggling to conceive we found each other and would talk about it a little bit but not that much and so then you know talking to the same doctor and going through the steps like okay what is what does this look like what is this process and with in vitro fertilization and and okay birth control pills and then i have to give myself shots in my stomach and then i have for you know, three weeks, and then I have to induce ovulation, and then I have to leave the country because actually my country that I'm living in 
sees in vitro fertilization as either potentially, if it fails, abortion, which is illegal here in Costa Rica, or if it takes and you use the sperm from a donor, it would be viewed as um, uh, adultery. Oh my gosh. Wow. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then they changed the laws in, I think, 2017. And I was doing this between like 2014 and 2017. It was like right after I decided, no, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, was when Costa Rica changed the laws. So, so now I have to take the shot and then I have to leave the country. I have to go to Panama to this other hospital, same doctor. He practices in both countries. And I have to be in a hotel room and I have to be, you know, go into anesthesia. And the process is horrifying. Like for people just to know what's happening is that after you do all these hormones, your your ovaries are just swelling with eggs, both of them. And then they induce ovulation with another shot in the stomach. And then you're put into, uh, you're, you're in, you go under into a general anesthesia. And then they take a giant needle, like a foot long needle and an ultrasound. And they go up through the vaginal canal and they go into the wall, the vaginal canal, and they start poking at the ovaries to take the eggs out. It's really, really, really painful. And I remember, and I remember the first time waking up from it and just shaking, crying. I remember calling my parents and just hearing my dad cry, and it was it was so hard. And I remember looking at my partners and I can't believe I just did this. Like I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And they then they take the eggs and they fertilize them and and everything. And then they actually have pictures of it. You know of of them turning into the, the flower of life and seeing these little fertilized creatures, potential humans there, you know, and I wrote a poem about it. These are my babies in a bowl and these are my babies that I'll never hold. And, you know, and then they, they put them back in, you know, once they reach a certain maturity level, I can't remember how long anymore, like a week, 10 days, something like that, you know, then they are, um, very sexily put back into your body and then you can't move. And then you're pretty much just like bedridden, you know, for a few weeks, just waiting. And then you're just in this mind game of, is it going to work? Is it not working? Like, am I, what am I? You become like extra, extra fragile in this time. Like I can't walk. I don't want to jump. Like I'm afraid to fall, like all these things. It sounds like your whole life becomes about that. Your whole life. It's like all you think about, it's, it's really, it's, it's a psychological like mind twist. Like it really messes with you. And, and because it's not only just the emotions of it all happening, it's your relationship with your partner. It becomes sexual trauma and it's the hormones. So you're taking intense amounts of hormones which disrupts your mental faculties like everything becomes heightened everything becomes extra sensitive emotionally like charged you know it's like you can't really make rational decisions once you're once you're like that it's like having the worst pms that you can imagine <laughs> for like weeks and weeks and weeks at a time so then, of course, I remember, you know, going and, you know, you do you do your test and then just getting that negative news again. And then, okay, so I don't want to do it. And then we have to do it. Let's try again. So then pushed into doing it again. If your body was saying no to you in such a clear way, I mean, your gut was saying no. What do you think led you to 
to try these two times to, you know, to allow for yourself to be to be poked and violated in that way, because some people want to do it, you know, and 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 it's a good thing that there are options for those people who are really seeking to have any kind of option available to them. But it sounds like to you, your your body, your intuition was saying, I don't want to go through this. So what what led you to put yourself through that? I mean, I think so much of it was I wanted to please my partner and I wanted to appease, not even please, but appease the family, uh, his family in particular. And, and I wanted to prove to myself, you know, that I was, I was like a woman that I could do it also because I was feeling that betrayal, you know, and we over identify with masculine qualities of like productivity. Like I want to be able to produce, like this is the next phase. This is what I have to do. It's an achievement right? And I have to achieve this. And so I was feeling that. And then, but through that, like I was totally betraying my feminine, which was the actual creative impulse I was betraying in some ways because my creative impulse wasn't there. And I was betraying my intuition that this is wrong for me. And I was seeking, you know, that validation from something else to be like, okay, we can do this. We can do this. And and I was also in a relationship where I did feel quite bullied and overshadowed and kind of controlled it was a very codependent situation in many ways and so it was so many things that were just lining up against me that made me say yes and so then we did it a third time and the third time we saved eggs from the second time so I didn't have to go through the whole extraction procedure again but but it was just like in that process I completely fell out of love with my partner I started to resent them. And so this like illusion that we had of this amazing relationship was just crumbling right there. And it was such a deep sexual trauma that I also associate with him because I felt so pressured into it because I didn't feel like I had full yeah, agency over myself to say yes or to say a true yes, you know, because there's such a spectrum of consent. There's the consent of emotional maturity, full security in yourself to say yes or no to something. And then there's like the other end of consent where someone is drugged and being and saying yes, you know. And so I was somewhere in the in the middle of that consent where I didn't feel fully like a yes for this is what I want. And and that, you know, and I was taking my herbs and I was doing all my things and I was going to acupuncture and I had my therapist and one of the realities that came to me is like I don't want this I don't want this at all and I don't want to be with this person who's pushing me into this and so also like what happened was the idol and the ideal that I had around this relationship and around my own achievements through it all was totally broken down again it was totally ruptured again and again and so then I came out of the IVF and procedures and I said no I'm not doing this again and through that actually when I I found an acupuncturist I really believe she saved my life um just helping me to recoup my vitality and helping me to recoup my cycle and helping me to feel strong and and then it was actually uh, an eclipse We, we started to have a major breakdown in the relationship it was actually this 
eclipse in 2017. We were working this event and I felt so powerful through it all. I felt so just on point with my teaching and with my relationship with humans in the in the production space that I was working on with the students, with everybody. It gave me so much power to say, like, I'm done with this relationship. And I finally gathered up the strength to let that relationship go and to say, like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do this to my body. And I was so afraid of things throughout the whole process. I was like, am I, am I going to get ovarian cancer? Am I going to get, by using these, all these hormones, like, what am I doing to myself? And if this doesn't want to come through, you know, and then people would say things like, oh, I see your, ba-, you know, in these new age communities that we live in, sometimes they're so frustrating and boundaryless <laughs> that people go, like, oh, I, I see your baby near you. It's coming. I'm just like, shut up. Oh my Leave God. Me alone. Like, That's really? so inappropriate. It's so violating. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, where <laughs> am I right now? You know? And so like coming through it and just being finally now on this other side. And like, it was a true dark night of the soul. I mean, there were people, times when I would just imagine myself like dying there was times when I was like why does my body hate me so much like what is happening why can't I do this am I not feminine enough am I not a woman enough and I started to look at all of my more masculine so to say like qualities of that feminism (laughs) part of feminism says okay now you have to be a girl boss you know and now I'm okay so I'm a girl boss, so let's like step into that and let's see how I can take control of my life and how I can also become a little bit more feminine and nurture other things. And so I feel like I still have that girl boss-ish thing going for me, but it's definitely not my identity. And I, I found through my divorce and through this acceptance now of not carrying a, a baby biologically, I actually feel more feminine than I ever have. And I feel, yeah, I feel sexier than I have. I feel more like true to my, what my yes is in the world. I feel more motherly than I ever have. And just how I, I have a lot of students um, and just how I like care for them and how they treat me and, and look to me and, you know, and, and it's really quite beautiful. And I, you know, and I was so, so terrified after my divorce and being 38, 39, when I was divorced, like, now I'm going to be in the dating scene again. <laughs> is, is anyone going to love me again? And actually finding finding a partner who was like, I don't want kids. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, I want to just take a second to, to thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing something so incredibly vulnerable and personal. I mean, I I think there is so much wisdom and learning and perspective that we can extract from your story. So thank you so much for being willing to share it. And for the people listening to us, I'd like to do a little bit of a zoom out and think about the structure that the heroine's journey offers and this first phase that we call rupture because Sarah's talking about so many of the symbolic moments of this phase, such as feeling some kind of betrayal towards her body, right? Oftentimes, what precedes the rupture is the realization that we've somehow betrayed our body or that we are disembodied because we're 
immersed in such a productive or, you know, a production oriented society that being in our bodies, being in touch with our intuition is almost like something we'll do one day when we have time, which, which ultimately means that we disconnect from, from the source of the most incredible wisdom that we could have access to. And I have so much compassion for, for you and the moments in which your body spoke to you and you weren't able to listen because you were seeking that outer validation, which is also common when we are called forth in the heroine's journey, right? Where we're living in a world where our worth is determined by what other people think of us and by how much we're able to achieve and how much we're able to produce. And without a doubt, women are expected to be mothers. Um, and that's something that's changing slowly, but, but it's still a very, very huge part of our identity and what it means to be a woman. And so all of those feelings that you talked about, about is there something wrong with me? Am I not good enough? Are very common in people before they have this moment of, of rupture and of realization, you know? And, and that's something that I, that I wanted to talk to you about too, because you, it seemed as it often does for, for many of us before we have this fall into the unknown, that you were living the perfect life. And it, it definitely could have seemed that way to people that were looking at you from the outside, right? You're this power couple, you're so creative, you're in the public eye, you're guiding people in this new way of life and living, and you have to be this example. And that also means having children and, and all of these things and having this incredible relationship. And all of a sudden through the process that you described this huge disillusionment and, and these fallen expectations kind of take over the illusion of that perfect world. And you're faced with, with a blank canvas and that can be extremely scary and full of uncertainty. As you said, Oh my God, I'm going through a divorce and I'm 39, right? Like how do I even do the dating app thing? But really it, it can also be a moment of giddy excitement and opportunity. And I'm just wondering if, because the culmination of the rupture of this phase is that moment of realization where, you know, you can't go anywhere else but for forward in the sense that you need to make that decision. Like what you thought to be true is not true anymore. The old story is threatened, right? And there's a new story that you begin to build. And sometimes there's a very specific moment when, when we have that realization. And sometimes there isn't. And I'm just wondering if there was one for you. You know, I think, yeah, so good. I think what came up for me was that I really, I mourned it. And I think that that's so important is to allow grief to have its place and to not let it dictate the rest of your life though, because there's a, there's a line there where people sometimes start to identify with their grief and it starts to just become who they are. They're this sad person, you know, it's a, it's an identity of illness that we hold on to. And so I'm more in you know, saying, like, you know, we were, we were teenagers in the 90s, like we're disillusioned, we we're kind of emo. And so I, I feel like I already 
I already had a lot of skills on knowing how to like mourn and grieve in yes. some ways. So important. And so I really like buried my babies. I buried the idea of what that was. And I, I think that my spirituality, a lot of it, you know, I, I identify as rich and that is my, my spirituality. And such a deep part of that spiritual practice is shadow work. And that, and a part of the shadow work is also um, the metaphorical and the literal death cycle. And that we, as witches, as pagans, like the earth, the forest is the temple. And the forest is in a constant state of growth and a constant state of death. And, and that, that death gives rise to new life at all times. And so for me, a big part of it that helped me through was that spiritual practice and like doing symbolic burials for these children of know of connecting with soil of like feeling my own body, you know, disintegrate and reanimate into soil and bringing myself in, into my spiritual practice was very important component for me in the morning process as well as in my ability to to make my life new again um and see you know that there's something more than this right now and I don't want this identity there's also that big part of me that is maybe a little prideful (laughs) you know like I don't want this identity of like poor Sarah she can't have babies because that was also like what was coming up where people look at you with these like sad eyes I hated that I hated that even though I am a deeply empathetic person and I want that at certain times when it's deserved but I didn't feel that way anymore so I was like don't look at me like this anymore I don't want to be this sad person it's just a part of my story and that my identity is multitudes and this has helped to inform like how I am in the world and how I behave in the world and who I am now in in my life. And so I just knew that I could remake myself again and again. And then I didn't have to hold on to this identity of like a barren woman. (laughs) You know, it was like such negative things were put onto women, whether it's calling them barren or what they used to call us back in the day, if you're like in your forties without children, a spinster. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Right. These like terrible, terrible names that they would call women, which is just so representative of the capitalist extractionist capitalism paradigm that we were talking about it's like that's the belief system it's like we all have to produce and we all have to contribute to society in some ways and the woman's contribution to society is by making more babies and and while i think that is a beautiful story for some people it's not for everybody And it's so important that we have available to us other stories, that we can create other stories, especially in these moments of profound disillusionment, that we have the the radical imagination, that we access that so that we can make of ourselves what we wish and what we want for ourselves. And also to listen to other women's stories so that what resonates with us can be a guiding light in the new path that I want to forge for myself if the vision that I had for my life is not what is unfolding, which is so often the case. And something that I find beautiful about what you're describing is 
is your capacity to remake yourself, redefine yourself. And I wanted to know, how do you def define being a mother now? Hmm. In so many ways. I mean, I think that when I, so when I think about the archetype first of mother, because my mind always goes there. I'm a very symbolic thinker and it's just my nature. And so when I think of the archetype of mother, we quite often put these very romantic, sweet, nurturing, you know, qualities to mother. But for me, mother can also be quite terrifying. And maybe some of you listen, didn't have a mother that took care of you well, who maybe you had a mother who was abusive. Maybe you had a mother who abandoned you. Maybe you had a mother who didn't know how to take care of herself and you saw her and all of you know her her tragedy unfold and so for me what helped me to really find what mother means for me was to remind myself that mother just isn't about carrying children and nurturing and breastfeeding and all of this but mother is the embodiment of a mature woman you know when we use the symbolism say maiden mother crone for example which we use quite often in you know, a lot of the new agey goddess traditions as well as in our, our craft traditions is that maiden doesn't mean a virgin woman. It doesn't mean someone untouched by sexuality. It means someone totally free unto themselves, completely independent, wild, and can do whatever they want whenever they want. And they have nothing to answer to. For me, mother is stepping into realizing that we're actually interdependent in that we're nothing without the other and that the other is nothing without us. And that that's a big responsibility to realize that and to know that like my me doing well in the world is going to help other people do well. And if I'm suffering, others are suffering just as when there is suffering that I know is happening, like my soul is not completely healed. Well, I love, I love that image of mother. Mm -hmm. So mother is interconnected. It is interdependent with life. And, and so now in this phase of myself and being mother, I realize that more and more in how I try to show up in community and how I try to show up to my collaborative partners and how I show up with my, my lover, my lover partner, and how I show up with my, you know, to my students who aren't you know, like little kids, it's like my students are adults that have their own stories that have their own wisdom that have their, you know, teachings to share and how we interrelate with each other in so many beautiful ways that is knitting, you know, that metaphor, that symbol of like knitting tapestry back together, reweaving things, you know, we're reweaving our humanity. And then for me, Crone is realizing that deeper connection to soul and to into spirit and like that readiness to dissolve back into soil and to become become life food for life again you know i think that that's that crone phase yeah and so that for me is what motherhood means right now i think for me a lot of it means a part of role of mother is call you into accountability with yourself with others helping us to like show up in in a way where we can be in integrity with other people so i really try to do that <laughs> call people 
call people in. I don't like calling them out and helping people to be accountable and direct. Um, another way is I, I mentor a lot, you know, like people my own age, older than me, younger than me, and just help. I really like collaborate collaborative process. I'm not a com competitive person like at all. I never have been. <laughs> um, and I really love collaboration. I love helping other people to realize their dreams and brainstorm on what it might look like and be a cheerleader for people, you know, and I feel like that that's something I didn't always have with, with my mother. My mother was really shy and wasn't such a, a cheerleader. Uh, and so I like to try to show up that way. You know, when we think about, I remember, and maybe some of you listening have thought this too, like, oh, when I'm a mother, I'm not going to do what my mom did type of a thing. I'm going to do everything a little different, right? And they maybe did the best they could with the tools that they had at the time, but maybe they probably could have done better. And so I think about that as well. Like, what didn't I have that I really want to give and I want to show up and I want to be deeply compassionate but not reactive you know my mother was really reactive with her emotions and not super emotionally mature and she's a wonderful person but it's just not she didn't have those tools and now she's a little you know older and it's harder to to learn new things and so you know how can I how can I show up for people in, in different ways again whether it's like friends or whether it's in in my colleagues etc and then Oh, I think another one that I like to do is is just creating safer spaces for people to share vulnerably and for people to be able to eliminate like gossip and that kind of stuff. And of course, we still do it like we're human beings. It's our nature for a little cheese here and there. But, <laughs> you know, just just trying to hold hold the integrity around that as well, because I think that a part of the archetype of mother is a feeling of safety. And I'm I'm wondering if as a result of this incredibly profound process and rupture that you went through, your notion of success looks different today. Because part of part of that rupture is a rupture from male values of what success looks like, or even more profound than male, patriarchal values of success and and I really hear and get a sense that even though you were an incredible achiever when you were younger and you were creating a lot of things you relate to that in a different way today and and I wonder if that's been informed by what you went through absolutely you know and it, it's interesting I think for people who maybe hear that word patriarchy or patriarchal or patrifocal or whatever it's like I think that we get different pictures um and that sometimes the picture looks like a male dominated power over system which is yes and a lot of modern feminism falls into that category as well and a lot of the modern feminism specifically how I see it presenting itself today is in this concept of girl boss and this is my own evolution also some of you know, what I've read and witnessed through the feminist movement is that the angry feminism was kind of like, fuck all the guys, like we can do better. We are, you know, like women on girl power, women on top, that this and that. And I realized, and I also was validated when I read um, The Chalice and the Blade by Rianne Eisler, where she talks about matriarchy just being 
you know, another presentation of a power over dynamic in that it's a hierarchical system just with women on top. And at first I liked that because, you know, when I was younger, I was like, yeah, like women on top, women need to be the bosses, women need to be, you know, in charge, forget the guys, like let's, let's do to the guys what they did to us you know, type of a thing, which is, is quite, um, violent really and and necessary to a certain and degree. necessary yeah. i think it starts there it's the starting point <laughs> i think so too it's like introduction feminism right right right, right. <laughs> then it evolves correct and then i started to see just how damaged men are and how you know throughout the course of history they've been conscripted into war and how they've been rewarded with rape how they've been rewarded with theft and how, you know, like, so imagine like the, that the male soul of the world, how damaged it is. And I started to see that through living in community, actually, in seeing men like becoming, wanting to cry and being vulnerable and sharing about their own tragedies. I started to realize, oh my gosh, they're, they're just human beings like we are. And so what does it actually look like to be a feminist? It actually means to support the other and to help to raise them up. Because if I'm just raising myself up by pushing them down, I'm just doing what they've always done. And that was a big part of my wake up. And then, you know, and how I've seen the patriarchy flipping into matriarchy is in this whole identity now of, of girl boss. And I feel like it's... um it's been like a societal evolution for us where it was like girl power and like the late nineties, early two thousands. And now it's all about girl boss, you know, and that the girl boss, they are someone female identified who is a CEO, who is a, the breadwinner of the family, who has all the degrees of higher education, who has, you know, independence, they own their homes. They are single moms. They are all these people that, say I'm a boss now they can do it all they can do it all yeah and that is a symptom of extraction capitalism in that we need to continuously produce we have to show that we can do it we have to you know constantly prove ourselves over and over again and there's still like a winner and a loser quite often in those types of a case you know where the girl boss is still a hierarchy and it's also exhausting. It is exhausting. And it's exhausting also because our sense of self-worth is completely deposited on our achievements and on outer val validation. And like extractive capitalism, it's never enough. You're on a hamster wheel that no matter how fit you are, what an incredible professional you are, how good you are with your job, how good you are with your children, how you how good you are taking care of the house. There's a, a sense and a void, a spiritual void that responds to this deep, really deep and terrifying feeling that it's never going to be enough. Yeah. You know, they, they say moments of crisis push us in directions necessary for our growth and our evolution. And what path did this moment of questioning take you on? I, I think I stopped trying to be an achiever. And, and that was a big part of the path was that I just realized that it was like every step 
was so sacred and so holy into becoming becoming more human in this world and to you know being able to hold more space for myself and being able to be more compassionate for the people I'm working with and you know and and just being an example I suppose if that's helpful or if that's even weird to say sometimes especially now for for other people who are trying to make this choice about do I want kids or not and what if I can't and what does that mean and what I encourage for people is just to remember that like your identity is multitudes I really love that and I really love this idea that healing is not an achievement first of all it's happening continuously <laughs> there's no end place to get to no no final reward I think that comes through it is you know grace and it's how we handle it yeah thank you for that Sarah I feel incredibly privileged to to be able to listen to your story to share your story with other people and I'm I'm wondering if you had an image of this phase of rupture like if you were a painter and you could paint it or a photographer and take a picture of it what would it have what would it look like what does it look like for you <laughs> the first image I had was a an egg falling to the floor and breaking open and through that breaking open one of my favorite quotes ever I keep it on my altars by Joanna Macy which is the heart that breaks open can contain the entire universe and I kept that on my altar throughout the healing journey after the IVF and and so I see the egg breaking and that quote right there This conversation with Sarah Wu was presented by Nangu, an organization dedicated to transforming degraded farms into food forests. Find out more at nangu.eco. I was so stunned by this conversation with Sarah. It left me thinking about a lot of things, especially about how we can deconstruct and resignify what it means to be a mother. I think if there's three insights that I take from this episode, the first one would be to allow grief to have its place and not dictate the rest of our lives. I also loved what she said about knowing in that moment of deep rupture and all that comes with it the difficult feelings of uncertainty and fear, just looking to nature and knowing that she could remake herself because the world is constantly remaking itself. And finally, I really love this idea that healing is not an achievement. It's about becoming more human It's every step in that sacred and holy path that allows us to be more human. If you're interested in questions that may allow you to go deeper into some of the reflections that we talked about in this episode, please look for them in our Instagram and social media where we'll be sharing complimentary information about each episode and each phase. We are at the Heroine's Journey Project 
And you can also find us at christinerain.org slash podcast. This first season has original music from singer-songwriter Nick Mulvey and the Costa Rican band Pasiflora, which I'm a part of. Don't forget to tune into our next episode, where we dive deep into the second phase of the journey, the descent, with Buddhist, nature mystic, and co-founder of Blue Spirit, Annette Noop. See you soon, and thanks for listening. Not alone